You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. On the screen, I have a number of quotes from Ayn Rand about Aristotle. Among them, one appropriate for today, Aristotle's philosophy was the intellect's declaration of independence. Everything that makes us civilized beings, she wrote, every rational value that we possess, including the birth of science, the industrial revolution, the creation of the United States of America, even the structure of our language, is the result of Aristotle's influence, of the degree to which, explicitly or implicitly, men accepted his epistemological principles. Epistemology, from the Greek root episteme, about which we'll talk in a moment. Sorry, epistemology, from the Greek root episteme, which we'll talk about in a moment, is the study of knowledge, or the theory of knowledge. And it's Aristotle's theory of knowledge, his views of knowledge, in particular, uh, out of the other parts of his philosophy, that Rand wrote that everything that makes us civilized beings is owed to. Now, I chose these quotes from Ayn Rand because this is an objectivist conference, and uh, Ayn Rand is familiar to all of you, and her opinion valued. But I could have picked other quotes praising Aristotle or highlighting his importance, particularly the importance of his view of knowledge. Quotes from people like Darwin, uh, from other scientists, from various historians or intellectuals. Quotes from some people who dislike him and uh, disdain the fact that Aristotle had such a large influence on our civilization. But nevertheless, if anything is agreed about, about Aristotle, and very little, unfortunately, is, that he was a major thinker with a major influence on our culture, on our way of life, on our way of thinking, is agreed. And that this influence has something to do with his view of knowledge in particular. And that's reason to be interested in understanding what his view of knowledge was. And yet, if you try to look into that, you get quickly frustrated, or most people do. If you look at secondary or tertiary works, that is, accounts by other people of his views, you'll typically find brief statements um, that are at some remove from the text. You won't find in this work he says this, but kind of very generalized descriptions, which is often appropriate for tertiary works. But oddly, the descriptions contradict each other from one to the next. Aristotle's a great empiricist. He's a great rationalist. We'll talk about what those terms mean later, but they're opposites. Uh, Aristotle is the father of science. Aristotle retarded science for a thousand years, etc. Both about his influence and about the content of his thought. And so if you try to go back to Aristotle's primary text to read for yourself what it is that he thought that had this great influence that is described in opposite ways by different people, or if you look at secondary sources that stick very close to the primary text, they often seem inscrutable. And when you can understand them, they often seem unimportant. It's unclear how what's being said in these texts, when you can, uh, can get your head around it, relates to the kinds of weighty issues with which Aristotle is associated. Aristotle's texts are the paradigmatic case of an esoteric work. The word esoteric, indeed, was coined in English to refer to them. Eso means in, teric means land. 
These were the, terra means land, these were the works that were in-house works for Aristotle's school, not intended to be read by other people. They were kind of, you know, for internal use only, and therefore presupposed all kinds of contexts that you wouldn't have unless you were basically one of Aristotle's friends. And likely they were lecture notes from which he elaborated as he went. By an accident of history, these came down to us, and his reputedly very well-written works did not. Um, and so they're just quite difficult to, to make one's way through. And you can see that uh, in some of the works I, I handed out to you. I tried to pick easier-to-read sections, particularly in what I suggested uh, for people who want to read beforehand, the bit from the metaphysics. Moreover, we have no bibliographic information on any of these works. And so if two things seem to contradict each other, we don't know were they written at the same time, was one written 20 years later, what's going on? So it can be quite a struggle to approach Aristotle, and particularly on these issues of the theory of knowledge. What my aim in this class is, is to give us a way into the material, to kind of open the door to it and give you an overview of what's there to tell you some of what he actually said about knowledge, the things that I take to be most significant, and to indicate where he said it. And I think this will be enough to make unfloating to you the idea that Aristotle had something very important to say about knowledge on which uh, much of the subsequent history of thought depends. And I hope that it will give you um, some leads and some context and some pointers for those of you who want to explore it further. You'll be pointed to the appropriate texts and given uh, some of the background you need to start making sense of them. With that in mind, let me say something about the handout I've given you. It contains two types of things, some uh, correspondences between Greek words and English words. That's necessary because uh, it just helps when dealing with the philosopher's technical concepts, particularly when they're translated different ways by different people, to open up a file folder for what is this word in Greek and then just track it through the English. Uh, and the other thing it has is texts, readings. Now these aren't required readings. They're not even in all cases recommended. But I did sequence them at different points. So certain things, if you want to read, would have been good to read before today. That I had emailed to you. Other things that are appropriate to read between this lecture and tomorrow's, and so forth. And what they are are some of the texts in which some of the points I'll be discussing today are made, so that you can see those points in context, or or which will set up points from tomorrow. And again, I intend it so that you can get a lot out of the course without looking at any of this. And some of the things will be hard to read, even with the context that I'm setting up. But it's, you know, for people who want to go one step further, you have this. And these are all, incidentally, my own translations uh, to keep the terminology consistent. Okay, so that's uh, the goals of the class, uh, some of the context for it, and, and how to make use of the handout. Uh, let me just say, as a matter of policy, please hold questions. I'll leave time for them at the end or sometimes stop in the middle for them, with the exception of questions or comments that are necessary to immediate short-term understanding, like, I can't hear you, what was that word you just said, what does that mean, you know, things like that. Okay. Now, a few more words about my approach to this before we get started. I'm necessarily going to be selective. Aristotle wrote a lot pertaining to knowledge. I'm only going to focus on certain topics that I think are the most important to getting an overview. 
second, as part of this being selective, I'm going to include less of my own assessment of this material than I might in some other context. I'll make indications of where I think Aristotle's wrong about something, how I think it relates to objectivism, and in a few cases I'll explore that, but I'm going to leave a lot of that just indicated and it's something we can pick up in the question period. Because the primary, uh, my primary purpose here is to give us a sense of this whole. Um, and third, about interpretations. I mentioned before that very little that you could say about Aristotle is uncontroversial. Uh, in particular, very few interpretive claims are. Uh, this is true with a lot of historical philosophers, but it's more true with Aristotle. And in a lot of cases, people will dispute what you say about Kant or about Descartes, did he really mean that or so forth. In a lot of cases, I think the disputes are picayune and uh, don't get to the essentials. Uh, but in the case of Aristotle, because of the state of the texts and because he's a really difficult thinker, there are very often plausible different interpretations um, where there's you know, a good deal of evidence on each side. Uh, if I took you through all of these on any given point, we would just never get anywhere. So for the most part, I'm going to give you Aristotle as I understand him rather than going through the different options for how to understand the certain section. But I am going to indicate some of the most significant alternatives where there are two different ways you might read something and where I'm going one way rather than another. And I'm going to try to indicate throughout how controversial or standard the interpretation I'm giving is. So you know when you're hearing more or less what anybody else would tell you about Aristotle, when you're hearing one side of a controversial debate, or when in one or two cases you're hearing a thesis that's unique to me. Okay. So with those preliminaries out of the way, we can turn to Aristotle's theory of knowledge. And the first natural question we should ask is, well, what do we mean by knowledge? I mentioned that the, the epistemology comes from the Greek word episteme. But in fact, this is one of three words that are routinely translated knowledge in translations of Aristotle, and for which there's really not overall a better translation. So I want to talk a little bit about these three knowledge words, which mean somewhat different things to Aristotle at least in his use. They are, the, the verbs and the nouns are up here and are on your chart. We'll stick with the nouns for now. Gnosis, idesis, and episteme. And to track these in English, I've resulted to the kind of barbarism of just prefixing them with a letter. G for gnosis, E for episteme, and O for idesis, since E was already taken and idesis is based on another word etymologically that starts with O. Okay, so we have these three words for knowledge. Aristotle writes at great length explicitly about episteme and defines it, and we're going to talk about his views of episteme later. That's not the case with these other two knowledge words, gino and ono. He uses them a lot, but, uh, and there are distinctions in how he uses them, but they're not something that he makes a subject. He doesn't have a book about gnosis. Uh, but I think it's important for us to get a sense of them, particularly so that we can understand episteme by contrast to them. So, gnosis, which I'm translating gino, it's sometimes translated recognize, be familiar with, uh, be aware of, be acquainted with, uh, any kind of thing like that, or just know, is the widest word Aristotle uses for knowledge. It applies in his mouth or his writings 
to everything from the most transient, simple sensation of a sponge or a shellfish, on the one hand, all the way to the most penetrating and deep knowledge of a profound philosopher, on the other. Anything that's any type of being aware of something is a gnosis. Idesis, or O-knowledge, is narrower. It's rarely, if ever, used for anything other than human knowledge that can be put into words. So if you know that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, that would be O-knowledge. It would also be G-knowledge. But uh, again, this is a more limited to human verbal knowledge, knowledge articulatable in words. And he doesn't say that, but it's just a, if you look at where he uses this word rather than the other one, not as an absolute, but generally that's the implication. So it's a little bit more restricted. Now what about episteme? What is it to eno or to epistasti something? By the time Aristotle was writing, there were bodies of knowledge which were called epistemi, enologists. And what were some of these bodies of knowledge that if you ask somebody, what is episteme, they might give you as an example of it. Well, in Plato's Theaetetus, a dialogue about episteme, that's what happens. In all of Plato's dialogues, there's some topic under discussion, and Socrates asks, what is it? And his interlocutor starts by giving examples of it. And Socrates says, no, I wanted a definition. Well, what are some of the examples? Geometry, arithmetic, and moving past uh, just Plato's examples, the physical sciences. And so an episteme, an e-knowledge, is what we might translate as a science. And to eno is to know scientifically. To have the kind of knowledge of something that a scientist would have. And for reasons we'll see, some people like to translate that understanding or to understand it. Although that causes problems because there are other words one might want to translate that way. So I'm just going to call it e-knowledge, episteme, or science. So what I want us to start thinking about is what science is for Aristotle, how it relates to other forms of gnosis. Because this is really central to his, uh, his project when he's writing about knowledge. What contemporary philosophers, uh, including objectivists, but also, um, also more conventional philosophers, uh, place at the center in thinking about knowledge is usually the question, in thinking about epistemology, is usually the question, how can I be certain? How can I validate my conclusions? If I have a belief, how can I know if it's right or not? How can I prove it to myself? How can I be sure that it's not mistaken? Ayn Rand said we need epistemology because we're neither omniscient, we don't know everything yet, and we're not infallible. We can get things wrong. And so we need to figure out what we need to do in order to know rather than be ignorant or have false knowledge, false beliefs. Aristotle is interested in that question, but it's not the central question he's interested in when he's writing about knowledge. And to see what that central question is, we have to focus on what's special about episteme and about certain other states that are similar to it in this respect. And in order to do that, I want to introduce another term, art. The Greek is techne, from which we get technology, technique, technical, etc. But we're going to translate it art. 
So there are arts and there are sciences, just as we think about it today, right? And these are each a type of body of knowledge. For example, in a university, there'll be the College of Arts and Sciences. And certain departments, like physics, will be sciences. And other departments, like, in, um, like painting, will be arts. But more broadly, we use arts to include not just the fine arts, not just you know, literature, what we would call you know, art in that sense, but bodies of knowledge that have to do with making or producing things. And that's the sense of this term in Aristotle. Arts would be, for example, uh, carpentry, cooking, medicine, which produces health, as opposed to biology, which is just the study of living things, and episteme. Okay. So we have art and science. And they're different insofar as arts are about making things and sciences are about knowing things without putting that knowledge to work, making anything. But what I want us to focus on now, and what I think is really brought out by the first chapter of Aristotle's Metaphysics, uh, what I recommend that is reading for today, is how art and science, techne and episteme, are alike, as opposed to uh, other more primitive, as we'll see, forms of knowledge. So what's discussed, or much of what's discussed, in this first chapter of Aristotle's Metaphysics is a kind of progression from uh, less demanding types of g-knowledge, of gnosis, to more demanding or specialized forms of gnosis. He begins by talking about perception. Perception, he says, is shared by all animals. Part of what it is to be an animal, thinks Aristotle, is that one perceives. All animals at least have the sense of touch, and then some of them have other senses. Some of the animals retain what they perceive. They have memory. Some of the animals that have memory have at least some of what he calls experience, and we'll talk about that term in a moment. But only human beings can proceed from experience to a higher form of knowledge, to techne and episteme. And much of what's going on in this chapter is he's talking about how techne and episteme are different from, and by his light superior to, uh, these lower forms of knowledge, in particularly, particular the highest of them, what he calls experience. Uh, the Greek for that, incidentally, is empiria. Uh, which I'll talk about the significance of that term later, but for now we can just think of it as experience. Okay, so all of these are types of gnosis or g-knowledge, but what we want to do is understand what's special about techne and episteme to Aristotle, how they differ from lower or less demanding and more widely shared forms of gnosis. All animals have perception. Some of those form memories from their perception. Men, and to a lesser extent, a few other animals, form experience from their memories. But only men, and in particular some you know, well-educated men, the ones we call the artists and the scientists, go on to achieve techne or episteme, art or science. What is it that these people have? What sets them apart? Well, what I have on the screen is just some of the text of the, the metaphysics chapter that, uh, that you guys have. 
what I think is significant is art comes about when a single universal view about similar things comes from many notions of experience. What's going on here? What's a notion of experience? Well, Aristotle has the idea that you retain what you perceive in your memory. From many memories of similar things, you arrive at a single capacity for experience. So if you've perceived, for example, many men, your memories of these many men get associated or related to one another. And that gives you what he calls a capacity for experience, a certain kind of ability. Now, from a lot of these abilities, or from a lot of uses of these abilities, I think, a lot of exercises of these abilities, this experiential ability, we go on to form an art or a science. Well, what is this experiential ability? And how does it relate to the art or to the science? Well, art comes about when a single universal view of similar things comes about from many notions of experience. So what seems to differentiate art from experience is that somebody who has the art has a single or universal perspective on a range of things that a person with experience views one by one. And the famous uh, example of this is, while it's the role of experience to have the view that this benefited Callias when afflicted with this illness, and Socrates too, and many other such particulars, it is the role of art to have the view that it benefited all such people, defined according to a single form, when afflicted with this, when, uh, with this illness. For example, phlegmatic or caloric people when burning with fever. What's going on here? Well, let's take an experienced person. He has a lot of experience around sick people. Maybe he volunteers in a hospital, or he's just, you know, a lot of sick relatives, whatever it is. And he remembers that a certain thing benefited a certain person. A certain person, let's say Callias, was coughing and had some other symptoms and just looked really awful. And then he took some chicken soup and he got better. And Socrates, too, was coughing like Callias was. Not just any old way, but he was like Callias. Socrates is the same, he's like Callias, and he was sick like Callias was, because different times you're sick differently, and there were different sorts of people. But Socrates and Callias, there's something alike about them, and there's something alike about how they were sick. He doesn't know what it is, but he's got them associated with one another. And he noticed that the chicken soup helped Socrates. And now when he sees you, you look a little pale, uh, he thinks, you should have some chicken soup. This would do well for you to have some chicken soup. Because he's experienced with sick people and with what helps them. And so, because of his many memories of sick people and what happened when they took different draughts and so forth, notions come to him. This way of understanding what a notion is, by the way, is one of the things that's somewhat controversial. But notions, ideas pop into his head. Hey, you should have some chicken soup. Right? He doesn't know why, if you asked him why. You're bilious and burning with a fever and chicken soup breaks up bile or something. Nothing like that. But you remind me of Socrates and the way you're coughing reminds me of that. And Callias too. Chicken soup was good for them. It would be good for you. That's what an experienced person has. By contrast to a doctor, 
someone who has the art of medicine, who doesn't, it's not just the case that Socrates and Callias remind him of one another. He has their memories associated. He thinks of them as a certain kind of person which he can define. They're bilious. You know, there are four kinds of people, the phlegmatic, the bilious, and so forth. And Socrates and Callias are bilious. And what's wrong with Socrates and Callias when the chicken soup helped them was the same thing. They had a fever. And you, too, are bilious and have a fever. And that's why chicken soup would help you. Indeed, he might even know, as we'll see, why chicken soup helps bilious people with fevers and wouldn't help caloric people or people suffering from another illness. Now, it's worth noticing that all this medical science is false. And that's going to become relevant later. But for now, uh, fill in medical science that you think is true. He's got tuberculosis, because there is a true point here, a true difference, that there are some people who don't know why, but have kind of hunches based upon their experience with a range of types of objects about what ways they'll be, what things will help or harm them, what effects you're likely to observe in the future. And other people have their knowledge organized such that they have a universal view about similar things and what properties they have. This is our first point about art, and we'll see that science is like art in this respect, and uh, versus experience, empiria. Second point. We think that people with art or science are more knowing, more o-knowing, than somebody with mere experience. And this is because the people with the art, the artists or the scientists, know the cause and the latter do not. As Aristotle puts it, experienced people know, oh no in this case, know the that, that chicken soup helped Socrates, that some chicken soup would be good for you. But they don't know the why. And so even within an art, within a field that we call an art, we can distinguish the people who really have the art and know the why from the people who merely know the that and don't have the art, but have experience and maybe they're like assistants to the artist. We think the master of each art is more honorable and more knowing than the handyman, since the master knows the causes of the product, whereas the handyman produced just like inanimate things do. Just as a fire will burn something when you put it near the fire, without knowing why, fires just do what they do. Likewise, some second assistant uh, um, carpenter will hammer a nail in either when he's told to or because this seems like the kind of situation where you hammer a nail in. But he doesn't understand why, thinks Aristotle. Why should a nail be here? Why should the fretboard of a guitar have this many frets and they should be spaced this way? He doesn't know, but he's got the habit of laying out the frets that way. Whereas Les Paul or Leo Fender or someone who's good at building guitars or uh, would you know, know how to set them up and know why they have to be set up that way. So the person who has art or science, as we'll see, knows the cause, not just the that, the why, not just the that. And this makes them more knowing, thinks Aristotle. It's not just that the artist knows more things than the experienced person. Probably he does, although how do you count? Because the experienced person might remember more concretes than the artist does. It's rather that the knowledge that the artist has is somehow more so knowledge. His state of knowing, his art, 
is knowledge to a higher degree or more intensely than the knowledge of the person who merely knows the that without knowing the why. It's higher grade or more intense knowledge. Art is than mere experience. Now, we can see the same thing. We've been talking about this in art uh, versus, um, uh, versus mere experience with producing a kind of thing. But the same distinction can arise in the case of what we call the sciences. Uh, and actually, Dr. Peikoff was talking about this uh, in his lecture yesterday when he talked about what was distinctive and new in Greek culture. So plenty of people prior to the Greeks had looked up at the sky and observed around that, plenty of people, at the Egyptians and the Phoenicians, and had observed uh, which uh, you know, effects in the solar system recur at which intervals, or rather in the night sky recur at what intervals. This star arises again shortly before the Nile floods and so forth and so on. But they only know the that. They don't know the why. And they only know it about the particular things about which they know it. They don't have it grouped into wide kinds about which they have general principles. They don't have a theory of the solar system or the geosystem, as the case would have been back then for the Greeks. Or again, uh, plenty of people in earlier history had noticed the ratios that hold between the sides of a right triangle such that the hypotenuse of the triangle is equal to the square, of the, the square root of the sum of the square of the other two sides. That's what we now call the Pythagorean theorem. But for the people who had noticed it before, it was one interesting fact, one that, about triangles that they had. And they could use it to, for example, figure out how far away a ship was if they were able to measure two of the dimensions. But we call that thing the Pythagorean theorem. And calling it a theorem means that you think of it as being proven from deeper truths. You think you know the why. You see it as following from something about triangles, or right triangles anyway, that makes it the case that this ratio will hold. And that was the kind of thing that was now going on in Greek geometry. Not just noticing more interesting correlations between certain shapes and their properties, but discovering why, as they thought, certain shapes had to have certain properties being able to prove it from more general and more basic knowledge of the shapes, that they would have these properties. And therefore, understanding why it was no longer a coincidence or accident to them that all right triangles had this property. They had to. They knew the why, not merely the that. Incidentally, there's no reason to think that Pythagoras himself proved that, that got associated with him. But, but anyway, it was proved uh, by the uh, Greeks somewhere in the few centuries prior to Aristotle. Okay, so we have this distinction between knowing the that and knowing the why. And it applies in the sciences as well as the arts, and between universal and particular knowledge. So let's sum up techne and episteme, art and science, as opposed to mere experience, empiria. Artists and scientists have universal knowledge. That means that their knowledge is about defined forms or kinds, types of objects. By contrast, a merely experienced person, someone who's merely experienced with a certain kind of object, say sick people, um, doesn't know about the kind in general, about sickness in general, or about different sorts of sickness in general. 
Uh, rather, he only knows about the various particular things within that time that he remembers. Socrates and his coughing, etc. However, he is able to use these associated memories to make predictions about new particulars, such that he can think maybe you'll, you would do with some chicken soup. That's going to be important in a few days that he can do that. But nevertheless, the experienced person knows only about individuals, not about the universal kind. Second, artists and scientists have causal knowledge. They know the cause or the why, whereas merely experienced people know only the that. Now, let me try to relate these two points. I indicated that they were already related. Suppose I give you the following math problem. It's a multiplication problem, 4 million, 5, whatever, blah, 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 then 457, multiplied by, not even million, billion, this huge number ending with 346. And suppose I ask you, is the product of these two numbers odd or even? Answer. Even. Now, you, what you might have done is gone through this whole problem and slogged through it and found out that the answer is whatever. I tried to do it, but it gave it to me in scientific notation in my calculator, and I didn't feel like putting it up. Uh, but you get whatever the, 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 the product is, and then look and see if it's odd or even. But you don't need to do that. Why? And even times any even number, any number whatsoever, is even, right? I mean, as long as it's a counting number. So, and even times anything is even. And when you know that, don't you understand why this had to come out as even? Now, let me give you another variant of this. Suppose, as actually happened when I gave this to somebody in class, what they did is just multiplied the last column, and got 42, knew that it would end in a 2, and therefore said it was even. That's a little bit more savvy than going through the whole thing, which would take you hours with this huge number. But there's something comparatively lame about that. And now suppose if I asked, I said to the same student, is it the case that anything times an even number comes out even? What she might have done is realized that it all depends on the last column. And so she would multiply through all the possible last columns times every possible even last column number, right? And she'd get, they get four, six, eight, you know, she'd get that they were all even. And so she would have a proof because the only possible situations in which any number is multiplied by an even is where we'll have a last number that's, you know, zero through nine multiplied by zero through eight. And all of those are even. Therefore, the result is even. But isn't the following a much better proof? What an even number is, is a number that's a multiple of two, that has two as one of its factors. And what happens in multiplication is that all the things that are factors of the initial number come together and are factors of the product of both initial numbers. Therefore, any time you have a multiplication in which one of the numbers is even, that is, has two as a factor, you'll have a product that has two as a factor, therefore is even. The two is just going to be maintained as a factor through the multiplication because of what multiplication is. 
and therefore the result will be even if one of the numbers was even, because if one of the two numbers multiplied has two as a factor, the result will have two as a factor, and having two as a factor is what it is to be even. Now, if you understand it that way, doesn't it seem, it might be a little hard to articulate, and it really is, I think, if we push it, what, what it means, what this difference means. But doesn't it feel like you have the cause now? You know why anything times an even number has to be even, whereas you didn't before. You didn't when you had the proof that went through all the different possible combinations. Now, you were no less, I mean, if you had that proof, there'd be no doubt left in your mind that it had to be an even number the next time you multiplied something by an even number. But you wouldn't understand why, whereas you do now, and many of you did before. Aristotle gives a variant of this example that's harder to do without a screen, uh, which the people on the tape won't have, concerning a triangle. There's the proof that a triangle will have angles, an angle sum equal to that of two right angles. He said, you only know that if you can prove it from facts about triangles in general, about all triangles in general. If not, you know it in some sense, but you don't have the why. You don't fully or really know it. You don't know it in this e-knowledge sense of know it. You merely have o-knowledge of it, merely knowledge of the that. And that would be the case even if you had three proofs. One proof that isosceles triangles have to have this angle sum, one proof that scalene triangles have to have it, one proof that equilateral triangles, and then another that there were no triangles that didn't fall into one of those categories. It would be like the thing I did with the even numbers. Uh, and yeah, okay, then you would know in some sense in the way a sophist knows, says Aristotle. But you wouldn't really, you wouldn't know in a different sense. You wouldn't have e-knowledge because you wouldn't grasp the why. And so it's by going universal to all even numbers, to all triangles, somehow that we grasp the why. Now because of their universality and causal depth, which we've just seen are interrelated, this is now summarizing what we've said before. Episteme and techne are more intense forms of g-knowledge, of gnosis, uh, than the o-knowledge possessed by merely experienced people, people who only know the that but not the why. And episteme and techne are uniquely human. It's this ability to understand things in this way, to have e-knowledge of them or techne of them, that is really what puts us apart from animals, thinks Aristotle. This is what human knowing is all about. And this is what Aristotle is interested in. The kind of knowing that's exhibited by episteme and techne. This kind of intense knowledge. He's particularly interested in episteme when he's writing about knowledge. But he's interested in this kind of distinctively human perspective on the world, where we grasp things universally and understand causes. Let me re-put what's at stake here in objectivist terms. Ayn Rand described what she came to do at 12, which she saw as the normal part of growing up, as starting to think in principles, which is really the same thing, I think, as what Aristotle means by thinking universally. You don't treat things as isolated and therefore unintelligible particulars, but rather as members of wide kinds of things and wider and wider kinds of things. Not just this shape, but, a, but 
this kind of triangle, and not just this kind of triangle, but a triangle, and not just a triangle, but a planar figure, and so forth and so on. To take Ayn Rand's some you know, kind of famous examples from objectivism, as a contrast to thinking this way, think of the, the man much storied in objectivism, who after having been convinced at great length that it would be immoral and impractical to nationalize the steel industry, turned around and asked, well, what about the coal industry? Thinking about each industry as a distinct concrete with no connections to the other. Not thinking about nationalization in general. What it is about nationalization that makes it wrong, such that it doesn't matter whether it's steel or coal that's nationalized, it'll be wrong. As an example of thinking in principles par excellence, think about what Ayn Rand does in articles like The Roots of War where she explains why there are wars, all the way down to the roots. What kinds of nations start wars? Well, status nations. And why is it that status nations start wars? Not just fascist ones or communist ones or ones like Russia where you can't identify how they're like Russia. They start wars because they're nations that try to survive by force. And wars are examples of force. And since you can't survive by force, your victims run out. You need to constantly find more victims external to your country once you've exhausted the internal victims, which is why uh, totalitarian states, forceful states, are externally aggressive states. There's an example of thinking in principle, going to the wide universal level, and therefore grasping causes. And Dr. Peikoff, in his memoirs of his time with Ayn Rand, published in The Voice of Reason, identified two subparts of thinking in principle. Thinking in essentials. You notice that it's a nationalization that's important in understanding why the nationalization of the steel industry would be immoral. And that it's steel versus coal is accidental, not germane to the point. It could be any industry and the same principles would apply. You think in essentials. And essential is a term that Aristotle introduced. In Greek, you can put the definite article in front of pretty much any phrase and get the phrase to work as though it were a noun. And we have a lot of words that someone in Latin had to come up with in order to translate into Latin where you can't do that. Some phrase that Aristotle was using that way. And one of these is essential, which is Latin for essentially beingness. And it's an attempt to translate the Greek phrase toti ein enai which more literally translated means something's being what it is, or even more long-windedly, what it is for something to be what it is. So, for example, what are you? You're a man. Okay, but what it is, what is it for you to be what you are? What is it for you to be a man? What is your being a man? Because you're having glasses, isn't it? And if I wanted to apply general, think about you in terms of just what's true of you as a man, that would apply to any man. If I wanted to go universal and think about you as a man, I wouldn't focus on the glasses. I would focus on that thing about you or those things about you, which are your being what you are, namely your being a man, on what it is for you to be what you are, on your being rational and an animal. Likewise, what is it about nationalizing the coal industry such that we can judge it morally? 
Well, it's a nationalization. And a nationalization is a use of force against productive people. Right? That's the essence of it. And it doesn't matter what industry it is. Or what kind of force? Do they march in with guns or do they uh, blackmail them to, uh, you know, whatever. Extort them in some other less direct way. Okay. So the essence is opposed to an accident. A feature of something which it didn't need to have to be the kind of thing it is. And which therefore should be omitted when we're trying to understand it. When we're trying to achieve intensive, universal knowledge of the thing. Another aspect now, moving on, of thinking in principles that Dr. Peikoff identified is going to the fundamentals. And this is what Aristotle would call grasping principles, archai, because Aristotle's word for principle is different in meaning from our English word, which tends to mean broad universal truth. Uh, for Aristotle, a principle they will be universal generally, but what's really at stake here is that they're fundamental. They're, uh, as Dr. Peikoff defined a fundamental, that on which everything in a given context depends. The Greek word archai means, at its most basic meaning, a beginning, an origin, a starting point. And so in that sense of principle, this is what everything in this context, say in the context of politics, in which case force or non-force would be, you know, uh, if not quite a principle, very close to one. Uh, or in the context of, um, of shapes in which points and lines and their basic properties would be fundamentals, starting points, using which you could understand other facts. So what's at stake when we talk about this high-grade kind of knowledge, this kind of knowledge that's epitomized by episteme and techne? And we'll see there are some other sorts of it. What Aristotle's talking about, what he's interested in, is what objectivists call thinking in principles, getting a universal, conceptual perspective on the world, as opposed to accident memorizing some disconnected, discrete bits of minutiae which you don't understand, which are unintelligible to you, which you can't connect to one another. Okay, let me pause now for questions. I have some more, uh, more I want to cover, but let's pause now for questions on the material so far. To some extent, it seems, at least in your example, that Aristotle is all arguing that deductive reasoning is superior to inductive reasoning. Am I that? Well, notice that we, the question was, is Aristotle arguing that deductive reasoning is superior to inductive reasoning? Notice that we haven't had any examples of inductive reasoning, which he thought ill of, right? What we've said is that deductive reasoning deducing down uh, some soup would be good for you because you're phlegmatic and you have a fever and soup helps phlegmatic people with fevers. That's a deduction, right? Is better than just saying, huh, you seem like my Uncle Ned who when he was sick, maybe you should have some chicken soup. That second thing is not an induction. It's some kind of reasoning by analogy, but it's not even quite reasoning because you're not in control of it the way Aristotle thinks of the experienced person. It's a just kind of associating that you can do. I was thinking more of your arithmetic example, where mm -hmm. you were saying the argument that says I know that even is two times uh -huh. is superior to the argument that says I multiply by two and then by four and by six and count them up. That's so. And I'm thinking that is at least closer to an inductive I prove. 
Okay, I think that's true. So in the case of the mathematics, the argument where you go through every even number is closer to an induction than to a deduction. And the argument where you go down from the definition of even, basically, is a deduction. And I think that is right. So is Aristotle saying that deduction is superior to induction? Well, what he's saying is that when you have an episteme, which is the highest form of knowledge, or anyway, a very high form of knowledge, there's one or two higher, you are in a position to understand things deductively from broad principles. There remains the question of how you got there. And induction is going to be essentially the method by which you get there. But induction is for the sake of deduction. And I think that's right. I mean, we are all worried about rationalism. And I'm going to talk a little bit about rationalism later, which is kind of focusing too heavily on induction, ignoring induction, and thereby disconnecting your general ideas uh, from the world. And that is a problem that people can have. But it's a problem that people can have only after they've gotten into some fairly sophisticated types of knowing and then have gone wrong with it. And uh, it was a problem that was already a problem by Aristotle's time. We'll talk more about that very shortly. Um, but Aristotle wasn't primarily concerned to combat rationalism, uh, although he doesn't think well of it. And we shouldn't let our concern to combat rationalism let us forget that the only point of inductions is so that we get to broad principles which we can then deduce down from to understand concretes. And uh, so is induction or deduction superior to induction? Well, induction is the font of the knowledge uh, which then enables us to deduce and to have a deductive perspective on the world, which is what this kind of high-grade or intensive gene knowledge that Aristotle is interested in amounts to. Uh, Evan? Can you comment on the difference between art and science a little bit more? It sounded in part like a, a theory-practice distinction, or was it that, I, I know I ran, I said before the Industrial Revolution, theoretical was hard to understand how theoretical knowledge could have practical importance. Was that the case here, or was it thought that studying physics, for example, would have no consequence for building an engine. OK. So the question is, can I elaborate on the dichotomy between techne and episteme? And is it a version of the theory-practice dichotomy? And you made some comments about Ayn Rand's view on that. Uh, yes. OK. So the, the distinction between art and science, techne and episteme, is that techne is about, or both of them involve understanding their objects in terms of the causes of their objects as Aristotle would put it, in terms of following from certain principles. In the case of techne, the principles are things that are able to be otherwise and are within our control. And so when you understand an object as an effect of something that you have control over, you see it as something that can follow from your own action. And you think about, and your, your use of this state that enables you to, think, to see things this way is uh, amounts to deliberating about how to or not to achieve that effect. By contrast, a science is about things that are not effect, 
understanding things as effects of causes which are not in our power. And so the activity, when you're using your scientific knowledge, what you're doing is not deliberating, says Aristotle, but contemplating. Now, I think there is a legitimate distinction lurking around here. The distinction between the perspective we can have on what's metaphysically given, which we can not alter but just have to appreciate and realize, and what's man-made, what, uh, and what we can affect and therefore have to judge and uh, decide about how should we affect it. And I think that's a valid distinction. And I do think there is some valid distinction corresponding to that between bodies of knowledge that are essentially about how to make something and bodies of knowledge that are essentially about the laws of nature that hold whether or not we make them. And it's not as though Aristotle doesn't think that the episteme may have any impact or influence whatsoever on the techni. They do in some cases, and he talks about that. However, all that said, and he's saying that there is something valid there, he sees these two as quite far apart. And in fact, he sees episteme as better than techne, uh, in part because he thinks the causes involved are deeper, and in part, this isn't a subject for this class, but it's something I lectured on before, because it's useless. And he thinks the very usefulness of the techne make them subordinate, and therefore less good in themselves, whereas episteme has intrinsic knowledge. And this idea is, as you guys might uh, be able to follow it out on your own, quite disastrous. It effectively is the Robert Stadler premise uh, and is inherited from Prado. And I actually lectured on that a bit in my lectures last year on Atlas Shrugged and wrote about it in uh, my essay on the role of the mind in man's life according to Atlas Shrugged, which appears in uh, Robert Mayhew's collection of essays on Atlas Shrugged. Um, so I refer you to there for my own views on this. But really, this is, that is, I think, more an issue of ethics and the value of knowledge than it is an issue of his a view of, of the epistemology that we're discussing here. Okay, I want to move on now, because there are a few more points I want to cover, and we'll come back for more questions towards the end. Okay, so we've been talking about what the techni, that's the plural of techne, are. Um, and you might notice that there are going to be deeper kind of more fundamental and less fundamental techni. For example, the techne of uh, luthiership, of making a guitar, which we were talking about before as an example, is going to somehow depend on the more fundamental techne of guitar playing. Not that you need to be a guitarist in order to build one, but the principles that are relevant to guitar building, like how many frets there should be and where they're spaced out and how wide the neck should be and so forth, are going to follow from facts about guitar playing, like that you have to be able to make these shapes with your hands and so forth, and therefore the neck has to be of thus and so a size. And so the techni are going to stand in a kind of hierarchy where some techni are masters over the others and therefore dictate the principles over the others. And if you follow this chain further and further back, as Aristotle does in the beginning of his Nicomachean Ethics, you'll see that above all the techni, above all the sciences or arts that tell you how to do this or that, how to make this or this, that thing, there's going to be a more basic underlying question. What principles govern human life as a whole? 
such that I should be playing music or not playing music, going to war or not going to war. And then if I should go to war, well then how should I do it? And that'll be the art of generalship. And so there is another intense gnosis, another one of these in distinctively human states, these states which human thinking is all about, which Aristotle calls phronesis, it's translated prudence or practical wisdom, which is the state of grasping in principle what's good or bad for a human being to do. Understanding not just in this or that case, not just knowing the that's in this or that case, it's wrong to steal, you shouldn't eat that, but understanding the why. In universal terms, what does a good human life consist in? And understanding from that how to live your life. And the state that has that is phronesis. And there's going to be a similar thing that occurs in episteme. There are various epistemi, various sciences, but some of them are more fundamental than others. For example, some of the mathematical sciences are fundamental to at least certain of the issues in physical science. Uh, understanding things about the angles of lines that are studied in geometry and trigonometry are fundamental to optics. Or here's a mixed case between an episteme and a techne. The doctor knows a lot of whys in medicine, not just that. But when it comes to the fact that round wounds heal most slowly, he only needs to know the that, because it's the business of the geometer to know the why. So if we think about this idea of some episteme will be prior to others, will be, and therefore will be more knowledge than others, or more intense forms of knowledge than others. Because being more universal and getting deeper causes means that you are more knowing somehow, a higher grade form of knowledge. We're going to come up with the idea of the very highest form of knowledge, the kind that knows the principles of everything, of being qua being. And the state that we have when we have that is what Aristotle calls sophia, or wisdom, the discipline that's involved is what we call metaphysics. Aristotle calls it by a number of names, including first philosophy. And what's going on in this first chapter of the metaphysics that I suggested you read for today is he's talking about the different forms of gnosis, perception, memory, experience, techne, episteme, in order to kind of build up to, well, what we're going to do now is we're going to try to get some sophia. We're going to try to study the deepest causes. That's what this book is about. And so by way of motivating that book, he is building up to Sophia. With this in mind, I want to just look briefly at Aristotle's corpus. One, to orient you to what we're going to be doing going forward, and two, to just give you an application of this view of knowledge, of this view of the different types of high-grade and distinctively human types of awareness. This is Aristotle's corpus. I omitted some things that came down to us as by him that probably aren't, but you know, basically this is Aristotle's corpus. You don't have to be able to read the particular titles to get the point. I know they're small. But it's broken up into segments. The beginning part is what's called the organon or instrument, the tool. Organon is just Greek for tool or instrument. The tool for knowledge. And this is what is commonly referred to as Aristotle's logic. It consists of a number of different works, and we'll distinguish between them later. Following that is a large section of works 
on fusike, physics, or natural philosophy. This includes the work of the physics, which gives you the kind of fundamentals of that field, but also a lot of subworks on different subsections of the natural world, on the planets and the stars, uh, on living things. And there's a whole section uh, of, uh, of many different works on animals, or many, you know, half a dozen works on animals. All of this is episteme. Fusike, the episteme of nature, of natural things, is the one in which Aristotle is most interested in personally and wrote the most about him. We have a whole slew of books that constitute Aristotle's natural writings. They're followed by a work called The Metaphysics, not so named by Aristotle, but by his uh, successors who put the book together out of his notes. And it's called that because metaphysics means, or tometatophysica in Greek, tometatophysica, the stuff that comes after the physics. And it's clear from the way it's written that it presupposes you're having read the physics and knowing the ideas in the physics. And this is the work in which Aristotle talks about Sophia and what the highest form of knowledge is, what the deepest causes and most universal truths are. But all of this together are Aristotle's works on episteme, including the highest episteme, or works of episteme, we should say, including the highest episteme, metaphysics, the highest science. After that, we get a bunch of works on practical philosophy, a bunch of works on how to live. These are works in which Aristotle is trying to help you to achieve phronesis, practical wisdom, prudence, prudence about how to live a good life. And for various reasons, which I won't discuss here, he calls that field statesmanship or politics. But it's about an individual's good life, not just about the states. And then finally, he has two works about different arts, different techni that he happens to be interested in. The techne of rhetoric and the techne of poetics. That is, of literary composition. I'll mention here something I, I didn't earlier, also on the heading of the distinction between an art or a science on the one hand and a mere experience or empiria on the other. In the work The Rhetoric and, and elsewhere commenting on it, he's very critical of previous people who tried to teach one how to argue and or make speeches. These are two different things, but either of these things. There were some good ones, but what most of them did, he said, is give you a whole bunch of speeches to memorize on the premise that having read a whole bunch of speeches, you'll then be able to make good speeches. Now, Aristotle isn't down on experience. He thinks it's part of it. You need to have looked at a lot of speeches to become a master at speech making. But that's not enough. If you've given someone a lot of experience with speeches, you, don't, you haven't taught them the art of speech making yet. And if you have a lot of experience with speeches, that might make you better at giving a speech even than someone who knows the art abstractly without having practiced. But it still doesn't give you the art. To have the art of rhetoric, you have to know in universal terms what's going on and you have to know the whys, the causes. For example, you have to know that a speech has as essential components the subject that the speech is about and the audience and that there are different kinds of audiences and different kinds of subjects. And when you're dealing with this kind of subject for this kind of audience, you should use this type of method, and so forth and so on. And this is the kind of thing that's done in Aristotle's rhetoric. And likewise in the poetics, where he talks about, well, what is a literary composition? What features, therefore, must all literary compositions have? What ways should those features be in different types of literary composition? And so on and so forth. Okay.
Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to be focused on the organon, really for most, well, for the rest of today and for the third day and somewhat tomorrow, and in particular on the posterior analytics, which is Aristotle's treatise on episteme. And so we're going to talk about the posterior analytics' theory of episteme. He says at the beginning of the work, or near the beginning of the work, in a part that, um, that you have and can read in context tonight if you want, we think someone enos something, that is, has episteme of something, simpliciter, simpliciter just means simply put, without any if, ands, or buts. We think someone knows something simpliciter, not just in the kind of half-assed way the sophists know things. Simpliciter, not in the sophistic manner, accidentally. We think someone enos something simpliciter whenever he genos, see why it's important to distinguish the knowing words? Whenever he genos the following three things. One, the cause due to which the object exists. Two, that this is its cause. And three, that it does not admit of being otherwise. So, if I am to have episteme that, if I am to epistasthai that, the product of those two numbers I had up on the board before, on the screen before, is even, I have to know the cause due to which the product is even. Namely, that one of the um, two numbers being multiplied uh, has two as a factor. And I have to know not just that one of these numbers has two as a factor, but also that it's having two as the factor is the cause of the very thing that I have episteme of, namely of the fact that the resulting number will be even. So it's not just enough to know that one of the other two numbers is even, which is uh, the cause, but also to connect the cause to the effect. And I have to know that it does not admit of being otherwise. I want us to put that thought to one side for now. We'll come back to that idea of not being otherwise. Okay. So what we need to know is the cause and that it's the cause of the effect that we're e-knowing. You have e-knowledge of an effect when you have g-knowledge of the cause and that the cause is causing this effect. Well, he says, we'll discuss later whether there are other different ways that you can have this kind of a perspective on something, that you can have e-knowledge. But for now, we're going to say that people know through demonstrations. And by a demonstration, he says he means an e-knowing deduction. And helpfully, he tells us that by an e-knowing deduction, he means one that by having it, a person e-knows something. This doesn't give us too much information yet. But we know at least the following. You e-know something by having a certain type of deduction, which he's going to call a demonstration. So we have to understand what a demonstration is. To do that, we'll start with what a deduction is. And Aristotle defines a deduction as an argument in which certain things being laid down Something other than these necessarily comes about through them. 10? 20? Okay. Something other than them necessarily comes about through them. So what does that mean? Well, it means in any argument you have premises and you have a conclusion. A deduction is an argument in which you can lay down, kind of lay out some number of premises, and you can get a conclusion 
just from those premises that necessarily follows from the premises. So, for example, if I say all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, just from those two premises, without bringing in any other knowledge, those premises that have been laid down, you can be certain that Socrates is mortal. That is, if you were certain of those premises. But it follows necessarily from those premises and those premises alone. Now, it's not clear to me whether this is a fundamental definition of deduction or not. It seems to me more fundamental than this, that the reason that the conclusion comes about through the laid down premises alone, necessarily, is that the premises are universal and the conclusion is a particular falling under them. But nevertheless, I think this is a true statement about deductions and it's a significant one. Um, and notice that it doesn't say that there's no kind of necessity involved in an induction. The kind of necessity that's involved in a deduction, the kind of forcing on you of the conclusion that's involved in a deduction, is simply that it forces the conclusion on you from these premises that have been laid down. That is, from a small set of listable premises. And I stress that because in Dr. Peikoff's theory of induction, uh, which has now been elaborated by David Harriman in uh, The Logical Leap, uh, he really emphasizes the point that there is a kind of necessity involved in induction, too. But it's necessitated not by some small group of premises you can lay out, but by your whole preceding context of knowledge. And Aristotle doesn't say that, but I'm not sure that he would disagree with it. Uh, what he stresses in, in, the, in defining a deduction is that the premises are laid down and something other than these necessarily comes about through them. Okay, so I'm going to take it that we have a, a general understanding of what a deductive argument is. And I want to start to help us understand what a demonstration is. There are a couple of elements, but I want to focus on one of them first. And I'm going to focus on it by way of an example. Suppose we have three guys arranged as on this picture on a moonlit night. Can everybody see there are two houses? One guy's in his house looking away from the window, the other guy looking out the window towards the ground, and the third guy, because there just wasn't too much more room, is sitting on the roof looking up. Okay, now suppose the following happens. There's an eclipse. The guy sitting on the roof thinks, the moon's eclipsed. That is, the moon's gone dark. And aside, for us, the English verb eclipse means to block something, but that's coming from our understanding of the astronomical phenomenon named an eclipse. The Greek word eclipse just means it's gone out. What's happened to the moon? It's gone out. I don't know why it's gone out. Right? It's, it's gone out. It's abandoned us. The moon's gone. What's going to happen to the moon? Okay, so this guy, the moon's gone. It's gone out. The moon's off, like if you blew out a candle. You know. uh, and he looks up and he notices that the moon is gone, out, eclipsed. Now let's think about this guy sitting in his apartment. He can't see the moon, but he's looking out his window. And in front of him is a tree, which would normally be casting a shadow on a moonlit night such as this. But because the moon's out, the shadow isn't there. And so looking at the ground, he has the following thought. The moon isn't making the tree cast a shadow as it's done when it's shining. Therefore, the moon is dark. Now, 
these two people reach the same thought that the moon's dark, eclipsed. This guy reaches it directly by looking, no deduction involved, right? He just sees the moon go out. This guy deduces it. The moon, when not dark, makes a shadow. There's no shadow, therefore the moon's dark. But his deduction is not a demonstration. And to see what a demonstration is, let's think of this guy. He's not even looking at the moon or the ground or anything else. He's got his head over his notebooks. And he has the following thought. I know that the orbits are thus and so tonight. And when the orbits are thus and so, the moon's light is going to be intercepted by the Earth. That is, the light from the sun to the moon. And therefore, the moon is dark. Now, he too deduces the thing that this guy notices and that this guy deduces, namely the darkness of the moon. But whereas this guy deduces it from an effect of the moon's darkness, namely no shadows, this one deduces it from the cause, which he so happens to already know. We can think about how he already knows that the cause is in effect later. But he just knows, independently of looking at the moon right now, where the sun and the earth are. And therefore, he concludes that the moon is dark. And he's concluding that the moon is dark from premises which are the cause of the moon's darkness. And that's why his deduction is a demonstration. A demonstration deduces an effect from its cause. This isn't yet a definition of demonstration because there are some other factors, but it's a crucial point. A demonstration deduces an effect from its cause. And so let me put up two deductions. One, only far things twinkle. The planets aren't far. Therefore, the planets don't twinkle. There are two of Aristotle's examples. And two, all twinkling things are far. The planets don't twinkle. Therefore, the planets aren't far. Of these two, which is a demonstration? Who says two? Who says one? The ones have it. And why? Because it's their lack of being far that prevents them from twinkling. That is, if something's far enough, there's enough stuff in between you and it that it'll block it and it'll twinkle. Um, it's not because they don't twinkle that they somehow came in closer to stop from twinkling. Right? It's because they're not far that they're not made to twinkle. Now, to understand, there's a more technical way of stating what's going on here. And I want to run through it quickly because I think it introduces a helpful concept from Aristotle's theory of deduction more generally. Anytime you have a deduction, Aristotle thinks, it can be basically boiled down to two premises and a conclusion, or a sequence of steps, each of which have two premises and a conclusion. I'm not going to argue for that or present the argument, but just let's take that as read for now. And the conclusions are always going to have a certain format, because all propositions, at least all basic ones, have a certain format. All propositions have a subject, that which is being talked about, and a predicate, that which is said about the subject. So for example, in both of the conclusions of these two uh, deductions, the planets are the subject, and the predicate in the first case is twinkle, that it doesn't twinkle, and the predicate in the second case is far, that it isn't far. A proposition either affirms its predicate, says the predicate holds of the subject, it does twinkle, it is far, or denies the predicate, it doesn't twinkle, it isn't far. Aristotle calls, when talking about a deduction, 
the subject or the, the uh, predicate of the conclusion, the major term, and the subject of the conclusion, the minor term. So, for example, in the first uh, deduction, planets is the minor and twinkle is the major. In the second, planet is the minor and far is the major term. Now, the interesting observation that he made is that anytime you have a deduction, one of the premises of the deduction is going to include the minor term and one is going to include the major term. And there's going to be a term left over which is in both premises but not in the conclusion which Aristotle calls the middle term. Now, you can start to see why, that ha why this has to be. If you're going to determine, for example, that the moon's gone dark and you don't already know it, well, what you're doing in determining that the moon has gone dark is connecting this predicate, darkness, to the moon. Maybe you just see that the moon is dark, but then you don't need an argument. If you do need an argument, if you are going to argue that the moon is dark, what you're going to need is some way of connecting up darkness to the moon. You're going to need something in between the moon and darkness. Like, for example, you're going to need to know that the moon isn't casting a shadow and non-shadow casters are dark. Or that the moon's being blocked by the sun and blocked things are dark in the two de deductions we looked at before where there were different middle terms. If you don't if you're going to deduce that the planets twinkle, you're going to need some way to connect twinkling and planets. In this case, far. Far is the glue that connects twinklings and planets. It's what's in the middle. Now, I think this is an important point about reasoning, about deductive reasoning, though there are some implications for induction, too, which we'll see later. Uh, that what one's doing when one's asking oneself a question and trying to find an argument that will settle the question, at least a deductive argument that will settle the question, is one's trying to see whether there's anything in the middle between the predicate and the subject of the proposition that one's trying to find an argument for, of the conclusion. One's trying to trace it back to connections between things, because a conclusion is a connection between a predicate and a subject. One's trying to trace it back to premises that together give you a middle term between your predicate and your subject, for which premises you don't need a middle term because you can just see the connection without any further. That is, you're trying to trace it back to premises that are immediate. Immediate simply being Latin for lacking a middle. You're trying to reduce the question do the planets twinkle? Is the moon dark? Which you don't know whether it is, so there is some missing middle between it. Two uh, propositions, all twinkling things are far, which uh, you supposedly know without any middle. To things that are prior to it. So maybe you don't know all twinkling things are far initially, but you can go back further and find a middle between twinkling and far and keep going until you get to immediate propositions. Okay. Now, very quickly, I've talked about 
immediate propositions, propositions which come first and are therefore prior to the later propositions for which they give you the middles. But Aristotle thinks something can be prior or better known because you need to know your premises already in order to get to know the conclusion from them. So you need to know them more so, right? Something can be prior or better known in either of two ways. Either to us or by nature. Something is better known to us when it's nearer to perception. Easier to come to know as a result of perception. And things are first or prior by nature when they are causes, essentially. Now, it's a little bit hard to get your mind around in what sense a cause might be better known by nature than its effect. But I think the idea is that when you know the cause, you can, through it, understand why the effect has to be that way, as opposed to the effect just being something you've noticed, but as far as you can see, is a coincidence. Now, Broadly speaking, what's prior to us and prior by nature are accident, are opposites, at least very often, but not always. For example, which is prior to you? Which is easier to know on the basis of perception? That a triangle has three sides or that its uh, interior angles sum up to the equal of two right triangles, two right angles? Clearly, the first one is closer to perception, right? And also, the first one is what Aristotle would think of as prior by nature, as the cause. So there are some cases in which they'll be the same. But there are also cases, particularly in the physical sciences, where they will be opposite. Where what you can perceive is the moon going dark, the effect. And only later do you come to learn what's prior to, uh, by nature, namely that the Earth's gotten in the way of the sun, sunlight going to the moon. Okay. So, bringing this back to demonstration, a demonstration deduces an effect from its cause. Oh, sorry, I missed a point I wanted to make. In a demonstration, the middle term is prior by nature to the major term. And so, by its presence or absence, causes the presence or absence of the major term. Before I said a definition deduces an effect from its cause, the more technical way to put that in Aristotelian jargon is that the, demonst the, in, in, the demonstration is a deduction in which the middle term is prior by nature to the major term. Okay. Now, um, we only have a few minutes left. So what I think I'll do is pause here because we're at a, a, a place where we can break and I'll take some questions. That might mean there are fewer questions next time, but uh, go ahead. So this is confusing to me. You said that um, episteme is a higher level of knowledge than the um, gene knowledge, or the uh, art knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And because it's not useful, in other words, it's because it's not coming into productive use? Well, there are two points. If episteme is, it, uh, the question was, I said that episteme, science, is higher than, a higher level of knowledge than techne, art. Is that because uh, episteme isn't useful? 
Well, here there are two issues that are at stake. If episteme is a more intensive form of knowing than, um, than tepne, than art, it's going to be because somehow it grasps deeper causes than art grasps. Okay, so if uh, it then leads to a productive use at a later date, it doesn't then lower the value of the knowledge. Right. And I think there are two factors involved here. One, episteme is, uh, one form of gnosis is a higher, more intensive form of gnosis, of G knowledge than another, if it's more universal or causally deeper. Uh, that Aristotle thinks in general is true of science as opposed to art. However, maybe it's not always true. There might be some arts that are more, you know, uh, involve deeper causes than some kind of fairly lame scientists. Um, what makes, there's another factor though involved in Aristotle's assessment of uh, arts versus sciences. He thinks that uh, what's really admirable about even arts, what's really kind of great about them, isn't how useful they are, although that's good, but what is really honorable and estimable and impressive about someone who discovered really useful knowledge is not how useful the knowledge is, but that he's grasped the causal connection. And the deeper the causal connection, the more um, impressive and valuable it is. And he thinks, indeed, that when the knowledge doesn't have a use, uh, it doesn't sort of sully it in some, such, in some way or confuse the issue. And so useless knowledge is ethically better, of greater value than useful knowledge. So I'm sorry, my, so my question is then, what if, what if at a later date mm -hmm. a use becomes known for that knowledge, does it then shift from epistemic to gnosis? It becomes common, you know, commonly used. Does it then well, it's, deteriorate the value? No, because it, it, discovering a use he thinks, I don't think he thinks would deteriorate the value. First of all, he's not, he's not of a mindset that we all the time discover uses for things we thought were useless. And that's really important to why he thinks some of these things. He thinks, look, you know, if know what the ratio of the sides of a triangle is, I can see the uses for that. But what possible use could there be once you discover how to prove it? It's not the kind of thing that can be useful. And he doesn't have the kind of historical perspective on what higher mathematics can do that would make that thing something that could even occur to him. So um, it's not a live issue for him. But it's not strictly the uselessness of it that is what makes it good. It's um, how causally deep it is that makes it good. However, he does think that less causal depth, the, the, the usefulness cuts out pretty quickly once you start going deeper and deeper. And so like principles of metaphysics, there's just no use for that. Okay. Uh, I guess one more question we have time for. Or ben, you've been... So the question is, why was Aristotle more interested in what I'm calling these intense or high-grade gnosis uh, in episteme and uh, understanding and what's involved in really understanding something than what people nowadays are interested in and even later Greeks were interested in? How do you know you haven't got something wrong? 
uh, that question. Again, it's not that Aristotle has no interest in that question. He does write about it. But it's not what's of central interest to him. Why? Well, I'm not entirely certain, but these new forms of knowledge were new. That is, science was a very new thing. And there were a lot of questions going on in the century prior to Aristotle and in his time about, well, what things really are a science? Is this the kind of thing of which there's a science or, uh, uh, or an art? Is medicine really an art such that these people really know causes? Or are they just kind of futzing around and remembering what worked last time? And there were a lot of, it was a kind of topic of debate, uh, particularly among doctors who I'll talk about. I intended to get to them today, but I'll get to them early tomorrow. Um, particularly among doctors, do we really have an art here or not? Um, and for Aristotle, who was trying to develop penetrate further and further into nature, come to understand things more and more deeply, was impressed by what had been done in geometry and what was just starting to be done in natural science, though in a groping, not very good way. What he was interested in is doing more of that. And um, so that's where his focus was. What is it to have an episteme? How can I get one? Um, how do I know when I've got one? Rather than... Um, how do I know if I'm wrong about uh, something that I know that it's the case? Okay, I think we're out of time. Okay, we're out of time for today. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.